I'm Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the historical and ancient sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of the Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have five years' worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it, called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that teaches them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. All scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want. A list of my resources can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. All right. This is going to be a different, different kind of broadcast. We're still doing Mark, okay? Because this is context that we need for the transfiguration, which I'm going to talk about next week. Now, I took a class on this some years ago, um, but I never thought I would actually teach about First Enoch. It's such a minefield, all right, with people feeling very, very emotionally attached to it, and it even shows up in some Messianic Bibles, unfortunately. But if you are passionate about First Enoch, I'm going to ask you a favor. Remember that you and I are united as a family and Messiah, and we are sp- we are actually required to love each other. It's not just we're supposed to love, we're required to love each other. And I may say things you disagree with, but I beg you to hear me out or just turn this off and, and not be angry. You know me. I would never delegitimize any of the 66 books of the Bible, but I do not believe that First Enoch is or ever was scripture. And I will talk about why I believe that. Um, but in order to understand why Mount Hermon figured so importantly into last week's teaching and this week's or next week's teaching, you need to know what the Second Temple period beliefs about how um, Genesis 6 should be interpreted. All right. Now, I'm not going to comment on whether or not they were correct, because I honestly have no idea. I will tell you that First Enoch is a bridge between their henotheistic background of worshiping many gods with Yahweh at the apex of the hierarchy and, you know, the later true monotheism, which was finally becoming solidified but wasn't quite there yet. And I will explain that. If you end up disagreeing with me, you know, that's fine. I'm perfectly okay with not being your personal Holy Spirit And I'm not going to manipulate you or shame you because that would be silly. People can disagree with me and it really doesn't faze me at all. And, And really, it's important that people be able to disagree with one another without it being a source of division. About 15 years ago, when I was in an immature snit about something... I still have immature snits, but they, they don't happen as often. as, And they're different now than they used to be. Well, some of them are the same. But um, 
So Yahweh used his outside voice with me, which isn't a big, actually outside booming voice like probably they heard the at Mount Sinai, but it's just, it feels like it's coming from the outside. <laughs> um, yeah, I call it the holy two by four of correction. And he, he told me never to be willing to be divided from anyone based on anything other than Christ and him crucified. Of course, I forgot that during my first two years of studying the Torah, and I was a total jerk. But, you know, he brought me around again. He reminded me. Um, and funny how mean we can get from studying the Bible, right? When it's supposed to give us better fruit. But good fruit happens when we allow the Bible to change us. Bad fruit is what happens when we use it to prove how much better we are than the people who don't get it. And that was me. All right. That was me during several phases. <laughs> of my walk. Maybe you can relate. You know, most people I meet, they can relate. Some of them won't admit it, but I think they can relate too. All right. Well, there was my opening monologue. Let's get down to business. So two weeks ago, Yeshua was taking his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, which is on the southwestern slope of Mount Hermon, which was notorious for being an ancient pagan site for the people of Israel. And this is, that's actually in the Bible. That's not even up for discussion. Okay, so last week he continued teaching them the unimaginable, that he won't be the kind of Messiah that they've been expecting. Um, so Mount Hermon, uh, Dan is there, okay? where Jeroboam set up one of the two calves when he decided that he needed to stop the northern kingdom of Israel from going down to Jerusalem for the feast. But even then, Dan has always been a pagan worship center since the since Canaanite times. It's pretty much unbroken, okay? It never was not pagan. Um, it's also the site of the ancient Israelite cities of Baal Gad and Baal Hermon. Now, according to Joshua 12, 5 and 13, chapter 13, 11 through 12, Mount Hermon was a part of, or at least bordered on the region of Bashan that was ruled by King Og. And King Og, of course, was one of the Rephaim. Now, between the Hebrew and Greek and the extra biblical texts, we have, you know, various words that are used to describe the Rephaim, but they also seem to be shrouded in quite a bit of mystery. You know, nothing's spelled out like, this is this, you know, the way we do it. English translations of the words describing them are giants, Rephaim, Rephaite, Rephaites, Titans, and Zamzumim. Um, but it's important to know, what's important to know is that the literature identifies them specifically with Mount Hermon, and they were unusually tall by anyone's reckoning. Uh, now, although the Masoretic text puts Goliath, for example, at um, at six cubits in a span or being roughly uh, nine foot six inches tall, the Septuagint text, Josephus, and a text among the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are all older, put him at four cubits in a span, which is six foot six. Now, nowadays people don't blink at someone who's taller than six foot, but you need to understand that David was probably about five foot six if he was tall and probably wasn't what we would call stocky in build. 
If you ever want an idea of what a six foot six Goliath would look like compared to a five foot six slider build David, just look at me standing next to my friend Ryan White one of these days. And I think I have some, I have a picture of us together on my Facebook page from Hanukkah last year. I am five one and he's six two, I think. Yeah. My build is medium and he has these massive shoulders and he's a really big guy. Okay. Not overweight, but big. Okay. Um, let me tell you that having someone tower over you like that in full armor and a huge spear would probably be just slightly intimidating. And, and you'd run unless you were stupid <laughs> or the anointed king of Israel, you know, just saying. Now, if the Maser Masoretic text is correct, then we are dealing with someone nine and a half feet tall. King Og's bed, um, at 13.5 feet long, according to Deuteronomy, you know, interestingly enough, is the exact same dimensions as an odd dolmen discovered in the region of Amman, Jordan. As this was the type of burial practiced in the region, it's certainly interesting. Um, of course, it couldn't be Og's tomb because it's too far south in the territory of uh, Sihon of the Amorites instead. But the Bible says that the Anak, who were rep also reputed to be giants, live there. So as much as we might wish that the Bible was more forthcoming with information, it, it isn't. But then, as Professor Walton likes to say, the Bible was written to us, but it wasn't written for us. It was written for people who didn't need this stuff explained to them. Which brings us to the second temple period pseudepigraphic literature like First Enoch and sectarian hoaxes like Jubilees. Um, First Enoch isn't a hoax. Jubilees was. Okay, Jubilees was rewriting scripture in order to present something. Enoch's different. Um, I talked back in Jubilees about, you know, why Jubilees is absolutely not to be regarded as authoritative. Unlike Jubilees, First Enoch isn't a text designed to deceive. But, you know, in order to promote a calendar, a sectarian calendar that suffers actually from the same fatal flaw as the one it says is evil, uh, nor was it written in order to promote an anti-Hellenistic pro-Hasmonean agenda. Jubilees was written for those reasons. First Enoch is what scholars call pseudepigraphic, means it was written... Um, as fiction on purpose and and took on the name of a uh of an actual biblical character right but over time it came to be known as by the name of Enoch because he was the main character you know and we see a lot of this sort of fictional material during the second temple period when authors wanted to explore and record popular beliefs about things not covered in scripture or just hinted at. As a result, during this time, you have an extreme preoccupation with angelology. All right. Now, let's talk about angelology really quick in order to explain why we can't take this as scripture, but must see it as part of the natural progression of the Jewish religion out of henotheism and into strict monotheism. Because, you know, nothing happens overnight. Um, and the reason I do this is not to discredit First Enoch as a source, because I'm about to use it as a source. But why I don't use what it says as authoritative truth, you no know, scholars do. 
And I'm not a scholar. I just play one on the radio. But it is true <laughs> in that it accurately reflects Jewish beliefs about Genesis 6 during this time period, but not scriptural truth. In fact, it was never written with the intention of being placed alongside the Bible. And First Enoch was written, it was, it's a bunch of documents. Well, we'll get to that later. Now, this is the problem that I see with some groups. This idea that the Jews wouldn't and didn't write fiction. In fact, in discussing this, you know, one day somebody flat out asked me why the Jews would write fiction about the Bible. And I said, well, every culture writes fiction about what's most important to them. What they want to explore and the what ifs about to and to write down what they think really happened. I do it myself when I teach and, you know, I take the Bible and what I know about history and say, well, this is what I think is happening here. I'm not lying. It isn't clearly written out. And so sometimes I have to make an educated guess based on evidence. And so I tell you guys, this is what I think. Well, with works like First Enoch and the Testaments of the Patriarchs and other works of that time period, they were like 2,000 years removed from the actual events and they superimposed their own beliefs, which were colored by a very different sort of cultural experience. And you know, they were injecting their own thoughts and agendas and beliefs backward into biblical events. I mean, you know, Genesis 6 happened. You know, let me quote this really quick. Starting in verse 1, when man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intentions of his thought, of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, the Jews of the Second Temple period associated this event with having begun at Mount Hermon. Okay, and we will talk about why in just a bit. It was supposed to be ground zero for pre-flood wickedness. Not Adam and Eve and the introduction of sin in the garden. That's different. But this was believed to be the introduction of wickedness into the earth. Not sin, wickedness. Um, and we will see a few sketchy things thrown into first Enoch that really smacks of Hellenistic and Persian influences. I mean, Adam and Eve rebelled... But if what they did was the full extent of sin today, or even the occasional fratricide, the world would be a much better place. A better place, not a purely good place. For good, we, you know, we're going to have to wait for New Jerusalem to descend. Until then, we are stuck with wickedness and texts like First 
Enoch, you know, first, a text like first Enoch tell us how the people of this era believed wickedness came about. You know, whether based on handed down oral histories or new fictions, how they believed it all happened way back in Genesis 6. As such, these beliefs fall into the category of common beliefs that wend their way, you know, into, uh, you know, scriptural what ifs. And the truth is that we don't know where the truth ends and the fiction begins, which is why this literature is at best classified, in my opinion, as historical fiction. Historical because it is based upon the historical biblical text and involves a real person, Enoch. Fiction because it is obviously not written by the historical Enoch. You know, it, it has nothing in common with ancient Near Eastern texts of that era. And it's obviously greatly influenced by Persian and Hellenistic culture, as well as the henotheism of the first temple period Israel. Now, in addition, it reflects attitudes that are diametrically at odds with the revelation of Yeshua and how God deals with sinners. It's very much in line with other sectarian documents that, you know, you find in, in Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the fictions of this area that were obsessed with the idea of divine destruction of men and, you know, not with their future redemption, as we see very clearly in the prophets and the gospels. Now, since I mentioned it, what is henotheism? There are four different types of deity-based religions. Polytheism, monotheism, henotheism, and monolatry. Most people are familiar with the first two and have never heard of the latter two, but, you know, let's review them all. Polytheism is the worship of many gods. It is to have gods who don't even remotely care if you're seeing other gods on the side. The worship of the main city god and the in the ancient world was the job of priests and kings. The common people worshipped household gods. They had pantry gods, you know, which were actually snakes to keep the mice away, you know, ancestral teraphim. Um, the god of the hearth, and a number of other minor deities. Examples of polytheism in today's world include animism, Taoism, Shinto, and some forms of Hinduism. Perhaps, sh perhaps shamanism as well, as they practice a religion that recognizes the existence of supernatural entities that they must appease. And I'm not talking about New Age shamanism. That's not the same thing. All New Age religions are romanticized versions of what they think the actual folk religions of other cultures are. They're never based on legitimate scholarship. It's more of a lifestyle than a theistic belief, but they're told that it's legit. And so when they go in, they believe it. But a monotheism is the worship of one God while rejecting the idea that there are any other gods. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and some forms of Hinduism are monotheistic. Monotheism is um, marked by the existence of a jealous God who does not permit any other worship beside their own, which should sound familiar. Now, monolatry is very similar to henotheism, and it's what we see in Mormonism. The belief that there are many gods, but it is only acceptable to worship one. The other gods have no jurisdiction and therefore they are not to be worshipped. 
Monolatry is exclusive polytheism. You can only worship one God, but there are a great many. With respect to Mormonism, the justification is based on a grave misunderstanding of the concept of the divine council present in the throne room of God and alluded to throughout scripture. They are the witnesses to his works and his servants. I, re I recommend Dr. Michael Heiser's uh, excellent book, The Unseen Realm, if you would like to learn about that. I read it years ago, and if you read the footnotes, which I always do, <laughs> usually, he offers his PhD thesis on divine counsel to anyone who asked for it, which, of course, I did, and it was awesome. Very groundbreaking. Now, henotheism is the primary worship of, you know, one of a group of gods while not denying the others or necessarily ignoring them. And it's what we see in the pages of the Bible throughout his, Israel's history going all the way back to the times after the death of Joshua and Caleb. Because of this mindset, this belief in regional gods who serve under Yahweh, idolatry was tolerated and even flourished. After all, you know, this system put Yahweh on top of the pyramid, you know, but while recognizing other gods as minor deities. And so Israel saw herself as faithful even though she was committing spiritual adult, adultery. In the henotheistic mindset, it's okay to acknowledge Baal or Ashtoreth as regional gods with local control as long as the main focus of your worship is, you know, Yahweh. So obviously to us, at least, this was not acceptable to the one and only true God. So henotheism and not monotheism is what we see going on in ancient Israel. Whereas other nations only worshipped their own gods and were therefore polytheistic, Israel worshipped Yahweh and the gods of all the other nations around them to varying degrees of severity over the years. In this way, they were far more unfaithful than the gods or th than the nations around them. And this is why they were repeatedly called on the carpet, called, you know, on the carpet for whoredom, okay? The Moabites weren't worshipping the Egyptian gods, and the Egyptians weren't worshipping the Phoenician gods. Everybody but Israel worshipped their own gods. Now, the Egyptians were recognized the Phoenician gods and the Moabite gods as being absolutely real. But they weren't the gods of the Egyptians. They were centered in other countries and therefore weren't really concerned. But Babylon changed every, started to change everything for the Jews. Anyway, I talked about this in my series, Isaiah and the Messiah, but when um, the Judah that went into exile as full-blown heathens who also happened to worship Yahweh, you know, they came out a much different people. However, that doesn't mean that henotheism was easy to give up. They still had the mindset that the spiritual world was populated with beings who may not have created everything like Yahweh did, but that didn't mean that Yahweh alone was in charge of the functioning of the universe or that he had set laws in place that controlled things like the rain and the tides and the sun and all that jazz. They modified their beliefs just enough to keep their need for spiritual buildings, beings who weren't simply worshipers and messengers and the heavenly warriors that we see in scripture. But, you know, they were actually in charge of how things operated. So their beliefs didn't fundamentally change. They were just altered. There was only one God now, but he was a God who had angels running things for him instead of minor deities. 
They still didn't see God as fully in control of the universe and having set up a system that was sustained not by angels, but by the power of his word. On Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, this time by Yeshua, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know, it was a... Let's give them... Let's give them credit. It was a step in the right direction. <laughs> but it was very much influenced by their experiences under the Persian occupation. And so Enoch is full of named angels who are in charge of this and that. You know, we we find nothing of this sort in scripture, okay? Where some angels sit on the divine council and we see others as messengers and armies or in armies, but certainly nothing like we see in uh, First Enoch. And we'll be right back. So this is Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome back to the second half of this week's Character in Context, which we're doing something really different. We're talking about the mysterious Mount Hermon, and of course Caesarea Philippi um, in ancient times was on the slopes of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon um, pops up a lot in extra-biblical literature um, with respect to the interpretation, the Second Temple era interpretation of the even more mysterious Genesis 6 and the Nephilim and, and all that stuff. So it's important to know what they believed during those times, even though, as I've been talking about, First Enoch isn't scripture and it reflects some some definite Persian and Hellenistic influence. So it obviously wasn't written way back when. And we've been talking about the Second Temple era angelology that took the place of the idolatrous henotheism that went before it. And it's a it's a step in the right direction. They aren't there yet. But anyway, uh as I said before or, you know, in the scripture, the Bible show angels as soldiers, as messengers, and as divine, divine council members. Um, but we don't see them portrayed anywhere the way we see them in things like First Enoch, because that belief did not exist until, um, after Babylon and Persia and during the Hellenistic times, but all right, because angelology was huge in Persia, okay? So as I've said before, first Enoch shows us how the Jewish people were interpreting the whole Nephilim incident. And I'm just going to briefly summarize that for you in this teaching so that you will see why Yeshua went with his disciples to Mount Hermon for the Transfiguration. And if you would like an excellent book on this, Dr. Michael Heiser wrote a book called Reversing Hermon which looks like a sensationalistic junk book, I admit, but the scholarship with, with him is always solid. Even when I don't agree with it, I've, you know, 
he he knows a lot more about the Bible than I do. You know, I, I, I don't always agree with his conclusions, but I cannot fault his research. Uh, Dr. Heiser doesn't see first Enoch as scripture either. Okay. But as a value, as valuable for context into the first century mindset, I don't know of any scholars, people who study the Bible professionally and study the context and the, and the extra biblical that think that first Enoch is legit. That's something that you're going to find with, um, people who, don't study that kind of stuff. Uh, never mind. Let's just stop. <laughs> Sometimes I go off script. So a lot of times, you know, all we have to work with is how they saw things, what they were thinking. And so why was Yeshua communicating with them the way he was? And we'll see this is important because first Enoch gets quoted in the Bible. So this understanding, even if it wasn't in scripture, was deeply ingrained into the pop culture of the times. Just like the naming of Janus Jambres, I guess that would be Janus and Jambres. <laughs> I always thought those were weird names. The unnamed Egyptian priest from the Exodus account. Uh, but according to Origen, he was quoting from the lost apocryphal legend, the Apocryphon of Jonas and Jambres, the mag magicians, and the, uh, which it also, um, it ended up in the Bible and quoting the uh, Greek philosophers by Paul. The Bible incorporates cultural understandings, which is why we see David had a teraphim, you know, an idol in his bedroom and obviously had no problem with it. You know, one big enough to pose as him asleep in his bed when he escaped his father-in-law soldiers. At no point do we ever truly escape our cultural mindsets. You know, all we can do is try. Um, what we cannot do is say that just because the Bible quotes from something or even agrees with it on some points, that it lends authority to the text. So again, important for context, not for scripture. Like if I wrote something, if I wrote a document called uh, the Book of the Wars of the Kings, I can't all of a sudden, but there's, you know, there's lost books that we don't have. And it, even if I quoted from the Bible and, you know, I, I posed it, I said, well, look, this is, it has the name and it has stuff from the Bible. Um, and people go, oh yeah, it must be from, well, no, I made it up. And I use stuff from the Bible. That doesn't mean it came, it's the right document. Same with uh, Book of Jasher, Sefer HaYasher. It was written in the Middle Ages. And it's very well documented, but people take it to be um, lost book of scripture. Anyway, okay. So just a few notes here to talk about the problems with the idea that first Enoch was written in pre-flood times or even before the Hellenistic era. So one, pick up your Bible, you know, Look at that big old thing. How many angels are named and how many times? Michael and Gabriel are named, but not until Daniel, which was written at the earliest during the Persian era and quite possibly during the Hellenistic or Greek era, you know, and they aren't named often. There are also two potential descriptions of fallen angels in the names of Satan and um, Apollon, but that's only twice in the Gospels and again in Revelation when we see when we see Satan in the Hebrew scriptures, like in Job, the phrase Hasatan or the adversary is sometimes translated by a real name, but it isn't exactly warranted by the text. 
The Lucifer mention in the KJV doesn't count because that is not what the text says. It's a corruption of the meaning of the text from the Latin, which translated day star with the Latin word for the planet Venus. It isn't until the Gospels that Satan becomes a title, but still it's not a name. The scriptures do not seem to be interested in honoring the adversary by giving out his name, just by giving him a description as a label. But uh, Enoch and other Second Temple period writings are packed full of named angels, something that was important in heathen religions with all the named deities in charge of this or that. But it's unheard of in the Hebrew scriptures, this obsession with naming anyone other than Michael, and he only gets a few mentions in Daniel and two more in Jude and Revelations, Gabriel's named three times in Daniel and twice in the Gospels, and that's it. That's that's not much for a big old book, the Bible, you know. Now, Enoch names a ton of angels, gives their job descriptions, and because First Enoch is not one work but a collection of eight different documents written by different authors in different eras, the list of angels and their jobs varies from document to document. So there's a lot of disagreement between, say, you know, the names and leaders and transgressions. Um, in the list in the Book of the Watchers, you know, starting in chapter 6, and the names and leaders and transgressions in the uh, in the list in the book of the parables in chapter 69. So the names are entirely different. So despite the fact that the different books in Enoch make reference to other biblical writings, they're kind of a hot mess in being inconsistent and not at all in line with, you know, the revelation, revelation of how Yahweh actually deals with sinners in the gospel. You know, I chalk it up to Greek and Persian-influenced mindsets of being very obsessed with the workings of the heavenly realms, with an obsession with all things pertaining to possessing a knowledge of the gods. And I'm going to be totally honest here. The Nephilim bit from Genesis 6 makes me extraordinarily uncomfortable. And I, I hate talking about it, but you know, it's like, oh well. Life is bigger than my comfort zone. I will be upfront and honest that I don't know where... Fact ends and fiction begins. I don't. But I can tell you what they thought about it. After all, whenever very little or next to nothing is said about anything in scripture, be it Nephilim or Rephaim or Melchizedek or Nimrod, legends spring up and take on a life of their own without anything to back it up. And especially with these three topics, which is why they are so needlessly divisive and sensationalistic when handled improperly or used in the service of agendas. So we have to be very careful to discern the difference between what the Bible does and does not support, while still taking into account what the people believed and how Yeshua worked around their beliefs and sometimes while dashing their beliefs at the same time. Yahweh does the same thing all through the Bible, okay? Not all things need correcting, and we know that Yeshua could have spent another 80 years just sitting around dealing with what folks had wrong, but there was no time. So as he does with us in our own lives, wherever we are at a given moment, he communicates with people according to their cultural paradigm. Of course, that makes the Bible more difficult for us to understand, but it's also what makes it fun and encourages us to dig deeper into what he was communicating with them. After all, um, slave owners in America 
you know, 200 years ago. They were using the Bible to justify what they were doing, even though um, just because they had slaves in those times and Yahweh was trying to reform the system. Um, but we don't we don't think slavery is good anymore because we live in a post-cross world. But according to Enoch, first Enoch, it was the belief of Yeshua's first century audience that what happened in Genesis six should be read exactly how it looks. And really, it causes the fewest problems later on with the existence of giants. If we just go ahead and take it as written that angels left their heavenly estate and took human women as wives. Those women gave birth to the Nephilim, which were a hybrid. And those fallen angels uh, taught their wives about all sorts of quote unquote rejected mysteries, which brought gross sin into the world, you know, beyond rebellion and murder. And that this happened when uh, 200 angels descended upon Mount Hermon, where Yeshua was heading in the teaching last week on Mark 8, and Peter identifies him as Messiah on the way. And all these angels took an oath together to, uh, to take wives and to uh, all sink or swim together so to speak, because the guy in charge of the rebellion wasn't willing to do it if he was the only one who was going to take the heat. So in Jewish thought, and maybe in reality, Mount Hermon was ground zero for the introduction of the rejected mysteries of heaven into the world and responsible for the thoughts of all mankind to be perpetually evil. Now, Genesis doesn't say, Genesis 6 doesn't say any of this. All it supports is that the Nephilim are a human-angel hybrid. Certainly nothing is said about these divine mysteries. And I want to look at them for a minute here and talk about why they don't all ring true with me as originating in the heavenly realms. But just because I'm discounting some doesn't mean that I'm completely against the idea of angels introducing some things that were um, beneficial and uh, harmful, okay? I'm going to go with the Lexham English Septuagint, which has some sections of First Enoch in it because I was too lazy to transcribe from the book that I usually read, which was uh, James uh, H. Charlesworth, The Old Testament Pseudepigrapha. The First Enoch is in volume one, but I recommend picking up both volumes if you want to be familiar with Second Temple writings from responsible sources. All right. So starting... And it's chapter seven here of first Enoch. Then they took for themselves women, each of them choosing a woman for themselves. They began to go to them and defile them. And they taught them sorcery and enchantments and cutting of roots and explained herbs to them. But those who became pregnant brought forth great giants from 3000 cubits. These giants ate up the produce of all of the men. When the men were not able to provide for them, the giants had courage against them and ate the men. And they began to sin against birds and wild animals and reptiles and fish. And each of them ate up the flesh and drank the blood. Then the earth brought up charges against the lawless ones. Chapter 8. Azael taught the humans to make swords and weapons, shields and breastplates. The lessons of the angels. And they showed them their mining and craftsmanship, anklets and adornments, powders and painted eyes, and all kinds of chosen stones and dyeing. Like fabric dyeing. Um, not dyeing. 
Um, much ungodliness and prostitution happened, and they were led astray and ruined in all their ways. Sema'aza taught enchantments and the cutting of roots. Amaros, spells of healing. Rakiel, astrology. Kokiel, the science of symptoms. Satiel, watching of stars. Sariel, the course of the moon. Therefore, the cry of the utterly destroyed people went up to heaven. Okay, so their cry went up to heaven, according to the author, because it's because these four thousand five hundred foot tall and some translate this as 450 instead depending on how you want to translate um pecos as um either 18 inches you know the the usually cubit of Re revelation or the much shorter l so giants were eating um everything and anything that's right you know, 450 tall giants at least, which which begs the question of why giants like Goliath and his brothers were so tiny. I mean, if this happened again after the flood destroyed the first batch, and this is the stated reason for the flood in the Book of Watchers, which is the first section of what we call First Enoch, and it's not like they could mate with human women again and make smaller hybrids, right? They're 450 feet tall at the smallest end. 4,500 feet tall at, at the, you know, it's like the hybrids could mate with each other and have babies, but they would still be the same size. All right. I mean, I mean, unless the recessive genes were catching up with them. I mean, presumably the Nephilim weren't all male, but first they were content to eat fruits and vegetables until there weren't enough. And then they ate people. And only then did they start eating birds and animals. But we run into a problem, or another problem, because that one's pretty significant. Genesis 4.22 says it was one of the descendants of Cain who figured out to do metalworking. Nothing about it being illicit knowledge, which is collectively claimed, you know, and later, later in First Enoch to be quote-unquote rejected from heaven. And why on earth would angels know about makeup? I make up as a heavenly mystery. This makes no sense unless seen as a huge polemic against pagan cultures who oppressed through the art of war, whose women were ornamented not only with makeup, but with a lot of jewelry. And even the Romans looked down on this sort of thing because, you know, outside of the expected garb of the high class prostitutes and medical sorcery. You know, in pagan cultures, they had amazing medical knowledge, but they didn't think it was enough to set the bone unless you also spoke a spell over it to make it mend, which is quite ironic, right? I mean, why even, why even bind it up, right? It would be, uh, but it was like they thought it was ritual and spell together. Um, it would be after the writing of First Enoch that, um, the Roman Empire would ban witchcraft. So that was still an issue. Chapter 69 talks about abortion and reading and writing being some of the forbidden arts. Abortion was probably not an issue during the real time of Enoch, um, at the time of the real Enoch, as children were still considered important for survival. But during Greco-Roman times, there was a problem with abortion and infanticide. But writing with ink on paper? You know, all told, this reads very much like Jubilees as a polemic against, you know, the surrounding pagan culture. You might remember that um, Jubilees had quite a lack, 
the backlash against public nudity, which would be out of place except for the presence of the gymnasiums in the Hellenistic, Judean, and, and Galilean, you know, era area. So, as you know, you know, we'd also had um, an extreme focus on adulterous women, a subject that's hardly mentioned in the Hebrew scriptures. This is a classic hallmark of Second Temple period literature, this polemic against the surrounding influences from the heathen nations that were really hurting society. Now, in 13.7, we see a reference to the waters of Dan southwest of Hermon, which would be an odd thing for Enoch to say over a thousand years before the birth of Dan. But in the time of Alexander the Great, we see that there was a grotto there devoted to the pagan god, you know, right there at the base of Mount Hermon on the southwest side, which is not mentioned anywhere in scripture, even in the inscription or descriptions of Dan, but would have made perfect sense as part of the anti-heathen polemics of first Enoch, you know, written during this time. Grottos, if you've never seen one, are caves near sources of water that flood periodically or have their entrances covered by waterfalls. California coast, you see that kind of thing. Um, this is very rocky. So in their minds, we see that the flood was the answer to this problem of the Nephilim and their murderous rampage instead of dealing with humanity as a whole in their sin. First, Enoch goes on to explain that demons were the spirits of these giants who were killed in the flood. Because they were half human and half immortal, when they died, their spirits were doomed to roam the earth forever, attacking people and especially women. Mount Hermon to them, to the Second Temple Jews, is ground zero for everything that has gone wrong with humanity and all the sins of the pagan cultures they see around them. You know, so many of the things forbidden in Torah and the prophets, divination, sorcery, incantations, sexual sin, oppression, war, necromancy, astrology, idolatry, abortion, in, in infanticide, etc. And actually, a lot of those aren't covered because they weren't a thing when the Bible was written. Like abortion, in infant, uh, abortion, okay? That wasn't in there. Um, they saw that oath on Mount Hermon as the entry point for all these problems, even though they don't show up in the Bible, all of them. And we don't know how much is true and how much of it was all fiction designed to explain the presence of so much otherwise um, unexplainable evil in the world. You know, certainly a lot of Enoch is obviously false and cannot be taken as face value. Um, but if Yeshua was going to make a definitive statement as to his identity as the only one to finally deal with sin and death, human depravity and injustice, you know, the place where he was going to make his final stand and challenge the spiritual forces of evil, it would be on Mount Hermon. That's where it would all make sense to his disciples. You know, whether or not that was where it all went down. And even if that oath never happened or never happened there, it was still the pagan center of the northern kingdom of Israel. It was where so much went wrong with the northern kingdom of Israel, where Jeroboam set up one of the golden calves in order to keep his subjects from going down to Jerusalem to keep the feasts. 
It was the northernmost center for Jeroboam's pagan cult worship within the inheritance of Yahweh to his people. So I believe uh, some scholars say t Mount Tabor, but a lot of them say Mount Hermon. And especially Dr. Michael Heiser says it's Hermon, and he, he backs that up really well. But as far back as um, Lightfoot during, uh, you know, 400 years ago, he was saying it was Hermon. He also said a lot of really horrible things about the Jews. So don't read his things lightly. <laughs> it's pretty horrifying. Um, so I believe that Mount Hermon where, is where the transfiguration happens, you know, which we'll look at next week. After that, he descends down the mountain to cast a demon out of the boy with the unclean spirit. It's the only time we see the disciples fail. They're at the base of Mount Hermon. And from there, you know, we see in verse 9 the direction that Yeshua and his disciples, they passed back into Galilee. If this is right, if Dr. Heiser is right, and I believe he is, then this really brings the transfiguration into perspective. If the fallen angels descended onto Mount Hermon and from there went out to cohabit with women and gross evil entered the world through that act, then Moses and Elijah descending onto Mount Hermon to meet with Yeshua in order to speak with him, then it's a sign to the first century audience that the problem that was created with the introduction of evil by the sons of God was about to be decisively dealt with by the Son of Man. It was a second Sinai. Okay? And Yeshua was, is showing himself as the second Moses, greater Moses. This is a greater Sinai, greater Moses. And, okay, whoa. Okay, so I'm going to recommend a few websites. Two from friends of mine and two from Michael Heiser. Now, FYI, I don't agree on everything, but I respect their work. And so I am confident in recommending it to you, even if you come out disagreeing with me on this or that or the whole thing, because I don't, we, these people, we don't agree on everything. Okay, so uh, let's see. Uh, DavidWilber.com, RyanWhiteOnline.com, TheDivineCouncil.com, and NakedBiblePodcast.com. And uh, next week, we're going to do the Transfiguration. Uh, it's really good stuff. See you then.